how did you start raising capital for that first deal? I got a mentor and a handful of somebody's who had already done what it is I want to do. They would tell me things like, find the deal, the money will follow. And so what this caused me to do was on my real estate journey, as I was learning all the new terminology, I would just simply share on my Instagram. So fast forward when months later, I'm finally at that place where I'm going to buy my first property. I still don't know how the money is going to find me, but I committed said, I am purchasing this property, I'm not selling this contract to anybody else. I'm keeping this deal for myself. And I made a post online saying, Hey, I've got this deal. I'm looking to raise private capital for it. Is anybody interested in putting their money to work? And one woman reached out to me and said, how much do you need? I respond $50,000. It was a property in the Midwest, the low purchase price. I have no idea if I'm going to get this. Then her response was, when I'm looking at job history, I'm really not looking at how much you make because your voucher will usually help the affordability of the property you're coming into. So for me, I'm looking to see how long have you been with the same company? The second thing that we look for is how long have they been at their previous location as well? And why are they moving? And then also, if possible, I want to talk to their previous landlord and find out from them if they remember them and it's positive. Awesome. Because especially if it's been years, that means this person has probably been a really good person for someone to remember them three, four, five years later. But if they remember them and they have something negative to say, that's a huge red flag because for you to still remember that and hold on to it years later is typically meaning that they caused enough stress that your organization remembers who that person was. All right. Welcome to another episode of Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing. Today, guys, we have a gem in the house. We have Mindset Marlin. This guy has changed lives of so many people in the sub community. And when I first met this guy, he had so much energy and it was just a plus that he also invests in affordable housing. So Marlin, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing today, man? Oh, man, I'm doing pretty good, man. And dude, thank you for having me here. I'm excited for this. I mean, this is going to be a great conversation because I remember I jumped on your podcast before yep. and I had a blast talking with you and we just connected on a whole nother level. So for the audience that doesn't really know much about you, Marlon, who are you? And tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah. So my name's Marlon Johnson. Uh, originally, I'm from New York. I'm currently living out here in Arizona. And since your podcast is about affordable housing and real estate, I'll take people through my real estate history. And that looks like when I was living in New York, this is back in um, previous, I was born and raised in New York. So we're talking 2019 is when I started getting into real estate and real estate investing in particular. And that was a result of where I was at in life. I was living at home with my mom and my sister. I was in my early 20s, maybe about 24, 23 years old when I started to have that life realization moment that my life kind of sucked. And like I, I say that in like, a joking manner, but I mean, I was working three jobs, uh, barely making $20,000 a year. Um, if anyone knows a, like a Knights of Columbus or like an Elks Lodge, I worked in a catering hall, an Elks Lodge catering hall. And I had been working there since I was 13 years old. I coached a sport called parkour and I would go and clean auto zones late at night after they would close down, like around 10 PM, we'd get inside there and be buffing the floors till about five o'clock in the morning, going to different auto zones back to back. And one night I'm never going to forget. It's a Friday night. I'm standing in the catering hall this particular Friday night. I had just fi finished cleaning the kitchen for the parties and I would stay after hours a little bit to get additional money. I would do the janitorial work. So I'd go and restock the bar, mop the floors, that kind of thing, uh, clean the bathrooms just to make an extra 50 bucks. And so it's about one o'clock in the morning on a Friday night and I'm in there by myself. And again, I, I just had this moment where I threw the mop down on the floor because I was just fed up of my situation. I looked around and I was having this like, you know, weird deja vu groundhog's day moment of I, how many times have I cleaned this stupid kitchen? How many times have I cleaned this stupid bar? Like how many times have I been in this exact position and how many more times will I do this for the rest of my life? And in that moment, when I had thrown the mop down, I found myself just standing still thinking and reflecting and seeing myself as an 
90-year-old man. This is actually something I do now regularly, but this was the first time it ever happened to me. I envisioned myself as a 90-year-old man sitting on the front porch in his rocking chair, just going back and forth. And from that place, I looked backwards on my life. As that 90-year-old man, I reflected on the life I lived, and I saw it. I had finished going to grad school. I was in grad school for physical therapy. So I graduated, got my career as a physical therapist, was making between like eighty dollars to $140,000 a year. I lived on Long Island. I got the house in the suburbs, the white picket fence, you know, three bedroom, two bath. I had the two kids. And like I was in that marriage where I don't know if we were really in love, but we tolerated each other and we stayed together for the heck of it. We had that stupid little dog that kind of barks too much that you kind of want to kick across the front door, but you can't because the kids have fallen in love with it. Like that was my life, man. Like that's what I saw. And I don't want to say that's a bad life because someone else might be, that's their ideal life. But for me, that life that I saw, it was, it felt like I settled. That's all it felt like. And that old man, Keep in mind, I'm still like in my head, that old man, all he could feel was regret, right? Like I just sat there and then, so I flashed forward back to the 90 year old man at the rocking chair and I began to ask him, I was like, why do you feel so much regret? Cause I can feel his emotions. I'm like, why do you feel so much regret? And Kent, what he said to me, he said, I wish I had gone for it. Hmm. I just, I wish I had just taken a chance. I wish I had just tried more, tried to be more rather than just doing the path that was laid in front of me, just almost taking the easy route. So in that moment, I I quit my job right there on the spot. And funny enough, it was one o'clock in the morning. So I I actually had to come back the next day to really quit. But (laughs) in that moment, like I, I actually, I quit. Like I mentally, I was like, you know what? I don't have all the answers. I don't know exactly what I'm going to do. I didn't know it was going to be real estate. I just knew I needed to go out and do more if I wanted to avoid that future. And so that was the catalyst that helped to lead me towards searching and eventually finding and landing on real estate and learning about real estate investing. Wow. Marlon, you're such a great storyteller. Not only I can tell why you were such a good closer. Um, just in terms of how you visualize and tell your story in, in a way that is so attention grabbing is how I would describe it. It's really incredible, man. The, the way you are able to connect with the audience, like I caught myself leaning in as you were talking, right? And I think that's a skill that people need to work on and really take some notes from how you just told that story. Because a lot of people can tell you, you should change your life. You got to do this. You got to do this. Instead of what you did was you help plant a seed of doubt in someone's mind, but also inspire them to be the best version of themselves. That's incredible, man. Like, I'm so glad I have you on this. Like, this is already setting this conversation up for like a amazing conversation. So you, you decide to quit. Obviously, you quit at 1 a.m. mentally. You came back the next day and you got into real estate. Uh, let's let's fast forward a little bit because I want people to kind of hear where you are at right now. What does your portfolio look like and what does your business look like right now? What are you focused on? Yeah. So great question. So the portfolio and I'd like to give people like a quick bit of context. When I got into real estate, like most people started off with no money, no resources, uh, very little connection. I was smart enough to go and get paid mentorship and that helped shortcut probably what would have been decades of me trying to do it the traditional way that most people do. So I started off wholesaling, which is, you know, I had more time than I had money. So wholesaling, I went out and I learned how to find off-market properties, off-market deals, put them under contract and sell those contracts for a fee. And I did that until I was able to eventually get to the place of building up a little bit of a war chest, gaining a little bit of experience and bringing myself back to my original desire, which was to build a portfolio to create passive income. So after wholesaling a handful of deals, I went to buy and hold my first property. Kent, I didn't really understand banking too well. So I didn't understand what refinancing was and things of that nature. Mm. I just think people always said to me, when you find the deal, the money will follow. So I found the deal. I was able to raise private capital from people in my social media following. They actually lent me the money, one person in particular. I bought the house. Luckily, I bought it deep enough that when I went to go and refinance, 
they would not let me refinance because technically I'm actually jobless. You know, I work, I'm self-employed. So I mm. technically, you know, didn't have a job. I didn't understand taxes and all that good stuff. So I couldn't refinance. I ended up flipping the house. That's how our flipping company got started. Um, and so to this day, we've done about 12, I believe it's 12 flips in that wow. LLC. Um, and then later on, I learned about, or I shouldn't say learned about DSCR loans, um, mm. debt service coverage ratio loans came back on the market, which are commercial loans that can be used on residential properties that are asset-based loans. So it doesn't require what my personal income really isn't a major factor there just my credit and the actual property, the deal itself and the ability for the property to cover its own expenses. Um, and once that came back online, I was able to grow my buy and hold portfolio, which today looks like 20 doors up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, up in the Midwest. And then I have one property down here in Arizona. Whoa, man, you started in 2019. You got 20 doors, 12 flips. That is so incredible, man. Uh, well, I really loved how you're, you're one of your first deals, you raise private capital because usually that's like the number one excuse we hear from people that one, real estate is a rich person's game. Two, I don't have any capital. I don't have any money. Maybe help inspire or give some tactical steps to the audience listening right now. Like they also might be working two or three jobs right now. And mm -hmm. in their mind, they had the same limiting beliefs where they said, hey, I don't have the capital. I, I can't do this. This isn't for me. How did you start raising capital for that first deal? I mean, that must have been scary just to even think about your social media following is able to kind of invest with you. It's it's really, really mind-blowing for some folks that are like, hey, the typical tract is I save up money for a 20% down payment and then... I buy my property and then I rinse and reuse and I wait until I get enough capital. How did you do it? Any sort of advice you have for the listeners? Yeah, great question. And you know, I want to acknowledge first what you said, the like the limiting belief, because that's where my mind came from. I never actually envisioned myself ever being a real estate investor. And oddly enough, Kent, my family, we had two or three rental properties. But it was very traditional, you know, spend five years saving up 20% down to go buy a property on the retail market and then to make pennies per month on the cash flow. And so that was just the route I saw. And to me, that was way too slow, way too long, way too much work. And I didn't want to do it. And so when I went and I made my first investment, which wasn't into a piece of property, which was into my number one asset being myself, and I got a mentor, I went and got yes. and a handful of somebody's who had already done what it is I want to do. One of my mentors, Sam Musa, said to me, the more you know, the less you pay in real estate. Said, the more you know, the less it costs you. And so I, I listened to those words and, you know, they would tell me things like, find the deal, the money will follow. So I was listening, but I didn't quite believe it. And what this caused me to do was on my real estate journey, as I was learning all the new terminology, all the, what a mortgage is, I didn't know what a mortgage was. I didn't know what a deed was. I didn't know what the difference between a realtor and a broker. I didn't know all of these things were so brand new to me. I would just simply share on my Instagram, on my stories, the things I was learning each day. Like, hey guys, today I learned that a mortgage and a deed aren't the same thing. You know, this is a mortgage and this is a deed. Hey, this is what a promissory note is. Hey, this is what cash on cash return means. And I was just simply sharing the process of me learning. And quite frankly, I wasn't doing this with a very deep intention on how it was going to help and benefit me in the future. Because I'm going to show in a little bit how this benefited me in a major way. I was doing it purely out of the fact that as I was learning if you followed that timeline, I got into real estate in October of 2019, very shortly after the pandemic occurred and the world basically shut down. I lived in New York, one of the states that shut down in a very heavy way. So I was just trapped in my bedroom, just being, feeling very lonely. And I just wanted to share with people. I wanted to connect with people. I wanted a sense of collaboration and um, 
accountability through my social media following. So I was sharing with them what I was learning, the process as I was going through it. So fast forward when months later, I'm finally at that place where I'm going to buy my first property. And I kept hearing the words in my head, find the deal and the money will find you. So I'm like, you know what? Screw it. I still don't know how the money is going to find me, but I committed. I mentally said, I am purchasing this property. I got it on the contract. I'm not selling this contract to anybody else. I'm keeping this deal for myself. And I made a post online saying, hey, I've got this deal. I'm looking to raise private capital for it. Is anybody interested in putting their money to work? And one woman, Tanisha, actually, you know, Tanisha, Tanisha reached out to me and said, how much do you need? Now, here's the interesting thing, Kent. You and I, you know that Tanisha and I have a relationship now, but that conversation, how much do you need, was the first conversation she and I had with each other. Wow. That was the start of our relationship. So, Kent, me being like, oh my gosh, this is actually working, I respond $50,000. It was a property in the Midwest, low purchase price, $50,000, being like, I have no idea if I'm going to get this. Then her response was, where do you need me to send it? And wow. now my brain is just like, this is not actually happening. Like it cannot be this easy. So my mind is thinking, just give her your bank account, get the money and don't say anything else. But curiosity got me. I respond, you know, this is my first deal, right? Like, why are you sending me the money? Because <laughs> I, I just, I, I needed to know, like, maybe did she think I was somebody else? Right? Did she think I had more experience than I had? Like, this is the first property I'm actually purchasing. Why are you lending to me? Like, I don't really know anything. And this is what changed everything for me. She said, I have been following you on social media for quite some time. And I can tell that you're a good, honest person. She had never responded to any of my posts. She never commented on any of my posts. She never liked any of my stuff. I didn't know she was in the crowd. I didn't know she was in the audience. I had no clue she was watching. And so that showed me that as I was presenting myself, as I was using social media to simply document my own journey, other people were watching and they got to have an understanding of who I was, not the deal, who I was. And that's when I learned that the lending game, the game of raising private capital is much more about building relationship with your private money lenders, with your people. The deal is important. Right? The deal has to pencil out. The math has to math. But at the end of the day, more than the math mathing, you also need to make sure that you're connecting with people on a real, true, authentic place. So I've been able to understand that now, and that's allowed me to raise millions of dollars for my own personal deals. And every property that I've purchased, every property that's in my portfolio, I, to this day, have not used any of my own money. Man, that is so inspirational. And I hope the audience takes away from that, Marlon, that everybody can be consistent and everybody can post on social media and everybody can do what you did, Marlon. Mm -hmm. except that you just got to be consistent. So I follow you on social media, Marlon, and I see you getting into the cold water plunge every single day. But you know what that does is I'm not following you because I want to see you get into cold water. Like, oh, it's going to be so cold for Marlon, right? I'm following you because people can notice that Marlon said he's going to commit to doing this cold thing, cold plunge thing every single morning, and he's doing it. And I think sometimes for folks that are that might be struggling with a little bit of accountability, what I've been doing recently, Marlon, is every single day I post that, hey, how many pushes am I doing now? How many things am I doing one more rep than the day before? Just to show people I'm getting 1% better. But then the other thing I do is I've been under, I've been going live for 50 days in a row now because I committed to doing 100 days in a row. But I've been going live for 50 days in a row, underwriting a deal every single day. And the whole point of why I'm doing it is like I want to show people that I'm consistent. But then more importantly, I just want to show them that I'm doing my work, which is exactly what you did. And you do not need to be the expert. You just got to show yourself that you're staying consistent and doing the work. And if that is what you are able to take away from this conversation, I hope the audience really takes away from that because you have shown that you have gone from three jobs making $20,000 a year to raising millions of dollars just by being consistent and showing that you have a good heart and you're out to help people. Man, what a strong takeaway there. Dude. Oh my God. That's such a great story. 
Yeah, no, thank you, Ken. And I appreciate that. And I love like the fact that you highlighted that because oftentimes we, in our journey, we make the mistake of believing, hey, I don't get to raise the money. I don't get to do the deal because I don't have the experience. But people seeing that you're serious about what you're doing, it's a game changer. And I'm grateful that I learned that because ultimately now when I look at people who are getting started and they feel that, hey, I'm not there yet, I, I like to let them know and I like to remind them, you know, becoming a real estate investor, becoming an entrepreneur, becoming that successful individual isn't just about having the result on the back end. It's are you sticking to the process? Are you showing up each day for the process? Are you showing up each day for practice? Because if someone were to look at me and they said, hey, I want to be a basketball player, but they don't consider themselves to be a basketball player until after they've made it into the NBA and won the, the championship ring. It's like that's a really long time to go before you could consider yourself successful. And looking at yourself as not successful is going to be detrimental to your ability to succeed if the only measure of success you have is getting that championship ring. In our case, in real estate, is getting that deal, closing that um, check, making the first million dollars, whatever that case may be. Instead, if we, we could still use that as a measuring stick, but also I would like to suggest as a measuring stick, we also measure, hey, are you showing up and studying? right? Are you showing up and underwriting your deals? Are you making the offers? Are you going to the networking events? Are you doing the things, the incremental steps needed in order to get you there? And if so, if the answer is yes, not only will the world see you as successful and becoming, you will also begin to see yourself as successful and becoming. And that starts to push into us courage, confidence, and conviction. And those are the things that are needed in order to grow. So I, I just love that you highlighted that, man. I mean, that's because there's so much to learn from your story, man. Um, it's almost like you're taking excuses out from so many folks. It's like, hey, if Marlon can do it, anybody can do it. And that's not a, a, a knock on you. It's more of you being inspirational, man. Like, this is why I want you on the podcast. And this is perfect because we're ripe around the Thanksgiving holiday. And I think we have so much to be thankful for. For one, you coming onto this podcast to share your story, give up your most valuable asset, which is your time and sharing your story with all of us to inspire all of us. And I'm guarantee, I guarantee it. There will be one person listening to this at the minimum that's going to have the life change by following just the simple steps that you're talking about today. So man, Marlon, I know this podcast is about affordable housing. So let's let's talk a little bit about it because one, you have laid out the foundation for people on one, how to get out of the rut that they might be in. Two, overcoming some of the self-limiting beliefs that they might have for raising capital or, or not thinking that they belong as a real estate investor. But help make it real for people that want to get into affordable housing, that wants to invest in like a Section 8 or a single family home or whatever, because it needs to be sustainable, right? Can you share numbers from like a deal that you've done for Section 8 and just kind of what the purchase price was, rehab, uh, rent, cash and cash return, what those numbers 100%. might look like? So I actually uh, pulled this up this morning. Um, I wanted to make sure I, did, I had the numbers accurate just because nice. uh, full disclosure for everybody, like I am not like the numbers uh, guy. Oh, I shouldn't say that. I am, I am a numbers guy. Uh, to you a, are. Numbers do you matter. Are. If you're going to be a business owner and an operator, uh, I when I say I'm not a numbers guy, it means like my brain's not all day calculating and thinking of numbers. So I just wanted to make sure I went back. So there's a property I purchased. Um, actually, it was last January. I purchased this property as a part of a package deal. So I actually purchased a portfolio from my seller, Maria Salgado, a super sweet lady. Uh, I'm not going to get into the backstory, although it's a great backstory of how I purchased the homes from her, uh, but that could be another story for another day. This one particular property is a fourplex that I picked up from her. Um, so I bought 10 doors from her in total. One of the properties had four of those doors inside that one house. This property is on Juno Avenue. And so that particular property I purchased for 67500 So that was the purchase price of the property as is when I bought it from her cash. So with that property, I had borrowed ten or $100,000 for that property. The reason I borrowed $100,000, even though the purchase price was $67,500, was because there was a little bit of maintenance, a little bit of things that needed to be done to the property to get it fully repaired. So I, go, I went ahead and put the money into that property. We were all in on that property maybe about, we put about 20, 
about twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars, somewhere in that ballpark, into the property. So let's say we're all in on that deal around ninety ninety-four thousand dollars, right? What happened was the property was already rented out. A part of purchasing it from Maria was keeping her existing tenants in place. She was worried about someone coming in, an investor buying the properties and kicking everybody out and just putting new people in. And so I had the conversation with Maria. I said beforehand, are your tenants paying? She said, yeah. I said, why would I kick them out if they're paying rent? Like, do they give you any issues? She's like, no. She's like, I like them. Actually, some of these people were homeless and I helped get them into the property. And so many of them were Section 8 tenants. They had Section 8 vouchers. Um, to this day, three out of those four units are still Section 8 uh, vouchers. One of the guys did leave on his own. So we put a new person inside there and we were able to bump the rents up there. But on that property, after I had purchased it, I did what most people are familiar with is a burr, right? So I purchased, I bought the property, I renovated it. It was already rented. So I didn't have to do any of that stuff. And then I refinanced the property. When I went ahead and refinanced the property, the property had appraised I believe I forget what it had appraised that. I, I think it appraised somewhere around the hundred and eighty thousand dollars. Let me actually pull up my refi document because man, um, that's a great appraisal though. One eighty from sixty-seven point five k. That's yeah. a significant amount of appreciation. And it was like hundred grand in net worth for you, man. Yeah. So when I had actually pulled out the, um, when I did the refi, we obviously don't refi at hundred percent. I believe on this one, we had our refi at 70%. So that's why I got to check the numbers and make sure it's all right and um, accurate, but we ended up refi. I'm looking at my HUD statement right now, $129,000 is what we got back from the lender. 129,750. So close to $130,000. And so with repaying our loan and all the additional fees and things of that nature, we were able to refi and close on that property three months after we purchased it. And we pulled out $18,974 cash to us. So technically, because I know you like to ask like, what was my cash on cash return? Technically, my cash on cash return is infinite because- Infinite! any of my own money to get this property. I got paid almost $19,000 that we put back into our bank account tax-free to keep this property. And as of today, right now, our monthly payment on this property in particular uh, comes out to, let's look at it. It's currently our monthly payment is about $1,670. So $1,668 is what it is. So $1,670 is my PITI with um, all my little expenditures and things of that nature. Currently, the monthly rents and the, the rent roll payment is a gross of $2,600. So with that $2,600, we are looking at essentially a gross profit of about $932. Um, you know, so for a house that I got for free, a house that I was paid $19,000 to make, a house that I have... 30% equity starting into it immediately. So it increases my net worth that is producing close to $1,000 of gross cash flow each month without um, any management, property management, without taking that into account. And it's a, it's providing affordable housing, right? Like it's just like, there's all these benefits that it just, it makes sense. And so what's cool is of the three out of those four units that have affordable housing, my tenants, when I look what they are responsible for paying because they have vouchers that cover their rent, some of the tenants are only responsible for coming up with anywhere from $50 to $200 a month for their rent, which is awesome for them because it makes being able to afford all the other expenditures in their life very easy. And then it's awesome for us as the investor because it means a majority, anywhere from 80 to 90% of their rent is being covered that we know is coming in like clockwork. Every We typically get paid three days before the month is over. So typically on the 27th or the 28th is when we get our check direct deposited. Man, I can see you talking at a affordable housing conference just about your deals, man. Because not only was this, and ladies and gentlemen, just pay attention. This was a home run deal, 
like absolutely in every sense of of a home run deal. Marlon got back all his capital, made money on a refi, nonetheless, and he's still cash flowing about nine hundred bucks before any of the extraneous uh, expenses. And he's getting helping three people in affordable housing. Now, obviously, they would be like, "Oh, I think for to take out of that, I really want to highlight the fact that you mentioned the tenants are only paying about fifty to two hundred dollars out of their own income to match towards the full rent." And I think sometimes people misunderstand that in affordable housing, just because you keep trying to raise the rents doesn't mean that the tenants portion of that rent actually goes up in proportional. I think I want to make sure people understand that it's not producing an unfair burden on a tenant by us raising rents as a real estate investor. So you don't have to feel guilty about that stuff. This is government subsidized. Uh, But then what has been your experience with your tenants? Because that's really the next question I always get. It's like, oh, affordable housing, section eight. So they're going to trash your home. Right. What has been your experience so far with your Section Eight tenants? So in this particular house, um, you know, and it's like anything, right? Like it's you're gonna get a mixed bag of people. So in this particular house, three out of my tenants were we love them. Or I, we we like them, right? I one guy we love, two guys we like, and one guy, I gotta be honest, Kent, we don't like him that much. <laughs> like we we really don't. And here's the here's the reason why we don't like that particular gentleman. Um it's the challenge with him is the lack of communication, mm. you know? So that's the one challenge. And I, so I'll share this. I'm originally from New York. New York's a very tenant friendly state. So any landlord and you hear them mention section eight, things of that nature, it's almost like a derogatory term. Um, there's a lot of just negativity associated with the word and the term section eight and affordable housing, just because of the way New York state runs and operates, it causes uh, good landlords on occasion to be, to feel like prisoners in their own properties when they do get a, uh, a problem tenant. The state I'm up in, in this Milwaukee, it's very different. The The relationship with affordable housing is very, very different. These tenants are similar to the sort of tenants that you meet in the private sector who are traditional cash tenants. So we do a screening process in a very similar way. Um, you know, what I actually like is Section 8 and affordable housing. There's a, a benefit to the landlord if they're aware of this, not to be abused, but to be aware of that if for any reason we ever had to get to an eviction, the tenant may potentially lose their voucher. And if they lose their voucher, they're losing a very important benefit to them. That's a major piece of how they're able to afford homes and afford housing. So tenants tend to be on better behavior to not miss out on that. Uh, This particular tenant was one of the tenants that we were when we were earlier on in learning how to screen and process we just did a terrible job screening is all and so there were some red flags that i now look at as red flags things like you know cell phone numbers changing in very short periods of time things of that nature Mm -hmm. um so what we run into with him is just he unfortunately does not work at all which causes a bit of entitlement and it causes a bit of him sitting around most of almost every other section eight work in fact every other section eight uh tenant we have they all are employed gainfully employed um they're good people they go out they do the right thing and so because of this particular tenant i actually have made it a part of our screening process that we look to only hire individuals who are employed. It doesn't necessarily matter where they're employed or how much they're making because Section 8 will help to cover the portion of rent that they can't cover. I look at it more so from a standpoint of a personality type. I want to find somebody who is an active contributor, who is resourceful, who is getting up and going and looking to take care of themselves, not be taken care of. Everyone makes the assumption that a person on affordable housing, a person on Section 8 has no ambition to get up and to take care of themselves. That's not the case. That's a blanket sort of thought process for an entire group of people where this is a housing assistance, right? This is affordable housing. Like It's meant to help, not meant to take for you and do for you. It's meant to help accelerate your getting back up on your feet, getting to where you want to be as an individual. So in this house, um, to make a long story short, this particular tenant, 
he just gives us a little bit of issues when it comes to just not answering the phone, not communicating, making it hard for our contractors to get in if ever, ever there's little work orders, things of that nature. Everybody else, phenomenal inside the home. Man, and I think those are such important criteria for people to realize. And you're not the first person that has mentioned this from other successful affordable housing investors that we've met. When they are able to screen for job or employment history, unless they are physically or mentally unable to work, that's also a very good criteria that people use. As long as you're being consistent and you're fair with landlord-tenant laws, right? that's a great criteria to include as part of your screening process. Because like you said, there's, it says a lot about somebody when they were out there actively trying to improve their lives. Naturally, they have some personality or traits that allows them to take better care of your home. Now, Marlon, you mentioned earlier that you guys have changed up some of your screening process. What so, Are you able to share like one, two, or three things that you might have added to your screening process now that you have learned from some of your past history of investing in affordable housing? Yeah, absolutely. So a big one that I like to do now, um, like you heard me say, is the job. Um, I So I try to hold people to the same standard I hold myself to, which is like earlier you mentioned like consistency. So when I'm looking at job history, I actually, I'm really not looking at it from a standpoint of how much you make because your voucher ultimately will usually help the affordability of the property you're coming into. So that's actually not as much of a factor if you're coming in with a voucher that will cover your rent. So for me, when I'm looking at your jobs, I'm looking to see how long have you been with the same company? Is there a level of consistency there? And are you in a any form of leadership position? Because then if a person's in, form of, in charge of a leadership role in their workplace, Typically, they understand what it's like to have people under them who don't necessarily care, who don't. It, it just it puts them in a different mindset. So now they are going to come in to this property and they're going to treat it with a little bit of care. They're going to take care of it differently than maybe somebody who doesn't have that same level of consideration for other people and other people's things. So I find leaders do that better. The second thing that we look for is how long have they been at their previous location as well? Is this a person that's bounced from four different locations or have they been a steady tenant at a location for five or six years and why are they moving? You know, Typically what we see is if they've been a tenant somewhere, a lot of the times the most common thing I see is that the landlord is getting ready to sell the property or things of that nature. And that's what's causing them to move. So I like to understand why are they now moving? That's always a big factor. Are you running away from something or are you being pushed out of something due to circumstances outside of your control? I prefer the latter because now this is an indicator that this is probably a stable person, not moving from place to place to place. And then also what I like to do is typically I like to talk to, if possible, it doesn't always happen, but I want to talk to the landlord who was the landlord before the landlord. So not just talking to the person, because if I got to, you know, and I wouldn't really do this. I, I'm always going to give an honest opinion, but I can understand how easy it can be to get a phone call and they say, hey, you know, your tenant wants to move into our place. And this is a tenant that we are just like, we want to get rid of this person as quickly as possible. I can see the temptation to say, oh, yeah, no, they're fine just so that they can have a door open for them that we can push them through our door into the next door. So there's a conflict of interest. So I'd rather go to somebody who has no horse in the race anymore. And I want to go and talk to that person, which is their previous landlord and find out from them, Hey, do you remember this person? Now, if they remember them and it's positive, awesome. Because especially if it's been years, that means really good. This person has probably been a really good person for someone to remember them three, four, five years later. If they don't remember them, that's also probably pretty good because it just means they were another run-of-the-mill tenant. You know, just a person came in, maybe paid their rent and left. But if they remember them and they have something negative to say, okay, that's a huge red flag because for you to still remember that and hold on to it years later is typically meaning that they caused enough stress that your organization remembers who that person was. 
Man, what a great strategy there. Uh, not only did you just go, drop three amazing gems, uh, let me add on to that last piece of where you're checking the prior landlord because that is such a crucial tip for you guys to remember just as how Marlon talked about it. The current landlord might be trying to just get rid of them. So you sometimes you have to take what they say with a grain of salt. But don't forget to check for fake landlord references. You never know if this person is just putting their Uncle Joe mm -hmm. on, on there. So you, it's very important that you ask, and we learned this from Ashley Hamilton on the prior podcast, is you got to ask them whether or not the person they're putting on there is the owner or the property manager. And then you can look, look on the MLS and just see who's the owner or who was the property manager on that property. And if for some reason that they, they lied about it, then that's another red flag for you guys to kind of pay attention to. So these are all, all great amazing pro tips that Marlon just have shared. I hope everybody just rewinds that really quick and takes some notes on it because these are crucial. Screening your tenants and make sure that they aren't going to trash your place um, is so crucial to success because that could mean a difference between cash flowing on a property and not cash flowing on a property. Simple yeah. as that. As simple as that. Um, Marlon, so I, I want to understand from you now, what, what do you want now? Because... This is really interesting. I've I've seen your journey. You become a very successful real estate investor, have a solid, solid size portfolio. What's next for you? What are, what are you looking for? Yeah, great question. So for me, I before the real estate stuff, it really my early inspirations weren't the Robert Kiyosaki's of the world or the Pace Morbys or the Grant Cardones or the Alvin Johnsons. It was the Tony Robbins, the Dean Graziosi's, the Les Browns, the Ed Milets, the people that spoke about the power of mindset, the power of positive thinking, the power of really taking control of your future. Those were some of the early influences I had that I always thought, you know what, I want to do what these men are doing. I want to be able to go out into the world and just have an effect. Like I can I have this you know, this dream, this desire to be out one day walking through an airport, a random airport, and to be stopped by a total stranger who very respectfully, you know, comes over and just says, you know, hi, Marlon, you know, first off, you don't know me. I know you don't know me. You and I have never met. However, I've come across your book or your podcast, or you were speaking at this event. And I was just one of the people in the stage. I was one of the thousands of people in the audience. And you said X, Y, and Z, and it influenced me. It woke me up. And because of that, I've gone on to do this great thing. And I've helped my family and I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. And I just wanted to come over here today and just say, thank you. And then they politely part ways. I want that experience more than anything else, which means I have to be able to go out and spread this message to spread information the same way Tony Robbins used to go out and speak. And because he did that, I was able to find his content on social media. I was able to find it on the internet where the internet is filled with a lot of distractions and a lot of nonsense. I was able to find this beautiful, beautiful gem and it guided me and it helped me on my journey in so many meaningful ways. So right now in my life, in this chapter, in this season, I have stabilized my portfolio. I've stabilized my rentals. And next year, I'll be doing one big real estate project um, just for fun, really just as a way to connect with and make money with some of my favorite people. But from my active income side, I am very heavily focused on growing my coaching business. I'm working with young entrepreneurs, men in particular, ages 20 to 35, people that are real estate investors who have at least six months of experience, who've got their first deal under their belt, who are in a place where they've gotten a little bit of traction, but they want to accelerate. They want to go a little bit faster and they feel like they have all the resources. They paid for the courses. They're in the programs. They have the mentors, but for whatever reason, with all these resources, they still feel like they're not quite producing the results that they want to be producing. And they're not sure why. The reason I want to work with those people is because when they have all the resources but aren't producing the results, I know it's not an external issue anymore. It's an internal issue. 
right? There are some times where a person just doesn't have the resources yet, and we simply need to give them the tools to get the job done. But when a person has the tools and they're still not getting the job done, or they feel like they should be further ahead than where they are, it's been 12 months, 15 months, 18 months, and things still aren't working. I know that typically that's a mindset issue. So I've been focusing and dedicating my time and attention and my money towards working and helping these people. So over the next year, you're going to be seeing a lot more of that coming from me, very directed at that small target for now, that small audience for now, because I want to basically help the guys who were me. I want to go and help them. And eventually I will reach out to work with more people. But for now, that's the group that I'm focused on. Man, I love how specific you are about your target audience and also what you want. Because I, I think for people out there right now, like I think I told you well what I wanted. It's like similar to you, Marlon. I want to be able to bring, develop a whole new apartment building, bring in a single mom with her two kids into a beautiful home. Something like it's like a home that they've never been able to live in before. But to see that pride and dignity in the home that they will have now and the sheer amount of joy and gratitude that they have when they just kind of give me a hug. Maybe they could get a little teary eyed, but I'm good. Like I'm, this is what I want. That emotional income, that thank you, just like you talked about from that person that's walking up to you at the airport. That is so incredibly more powerful than any amount of cash flow you can ever make. And I thought about it like, hey, if my daughter ever saw that happen, man, how inspirational would that be for her to see that one, you can help people. But to just to feel the pure joy of helping somebody and seeing her dad be help partially responsible for it. That is incredibly cool and so, so, so fulfilling that I'm so glad you were able to share that, Marlon, because I think that gives other people listening to this right now permission that it's okay to want that thank you. It's not selfish. It's what drives you forward. And the moment you have that clarity on what is driving you and why you're doing something like that, that's going to propel you to keep on going even when something slaps you in the face and try to give you a setback. And I think I'm so glad you shared that story, Marlon. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you for asking. Yes, great questions. <laughs> well, that's so important because I think so many people can can relate to your story and also reflect afterwards on what do they really want. Because everybody can say like, I just want to be a billionaire. It's not. It's not that rewarding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's rewarding when you're able to impact someone's life. Now, everybody's motivated by different things. I'm not saying that's applicable to everybody. But for me, at least I know what I care about. And this is why you and I connect. And when you start talking about what you want, you start attracting other people that want similar things. And now all of a sudden, you become best friends with some of these people that you meet that over time, you might graduate from your old friendship circle and towards a new friendship circle that pushes you to continue pushing forward. Um, maybe I have another question for you, right? Because I think there's a lot of folks out there right now with an old group of friends, an old friend circle that they're trying desperate. They're like, hey, I really want to do this affordable housing thing. And then they bring up all these whys of why you shouldn't do it. One, you don't have money. Two, they're going to wreck your home, blah, 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 blah. But there's a f- circle of friends that typically in all of our lives that that brings up the negatives and not that it's not healthy, but sometimes that is all they talk about. Do you have any advice for the folks that are trying to change the mindset for their friends that might not be necessarily ready for that change? Or I'm just curious to hear your thoughts because I'm sure you get this question all the time. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's actually a pretty common question, especially with the the age group of men that I work with, especially when they're younger, you know, typically in the early twenties, because what's the desire of most of us in our early 20s, especially young men, we want to grow, but we also want to bring our friends with us because we're loyal. We we love our friends. We have loyalty towards them. We want to see everybody win and we all want to grow together. However, we have to recognize that sometimes our friends may be acting at this season in our life as anchors that prevent us from moving forward to where we need to be. They act as weights on us that we actually have to let go. And we inadvertently act as weights on them as well, because when we allow them to hold us in place, we also allow them to stay in place. And so ultimately recognizing that there's a level of flexibility that needs to be had. 
there's a level of disconnect that needs to be had. And we have to separate from the old life in order to make room for the new life. And so that means letting go of some of the old attachments. And the scary part is, unfortunately, people understand that they have to have an abundant mindset, but they often are still operating with a scarcity mindset. And we often think of scarcity mindset and abundance mindset just in terms of finances, just in terms of money. However, the worry, the fear of letting go of relationships temporarily is a scarcity mindset. It's me saying, hey, if I let go of this friend that I've known since kindergarten, not forever, not go and burn the bridge and tell them to go kick rocks forever. No, just hey, I'm going to go work on this project over here. It's going to take me some time and I'm just going to be not as accessible as I've always been, but I'll see you when the project is over. That's an abundant mindset. That's a, I know there's more to life. I know that we'll see each other in another chapter. I know that things, my best days are still in front of me, not behind me. And so we're able to step into that a little bit more freely. However, when we're still operating from a scarcity mindset internally, there's this belief that, well, I like my friends. I enjoy my friends. They make me feel good. And I don't think that there's any way to feel better than how I'm currently feeling. I think the best moments are the ones that have already happened and not there won't be better moments ahead in the future if I step out into the unknown. And so it's this worry, right? It's I'm more comfortable with the past that I'm familiar with, with the present that I'm currently familiar with than the unknown future. And there has to be a knowledge and an understanding that your future is brighter than your past, that the future is better than yesterday. And when we can walk into that, it allows us to open ourselves up to the new relationships because a part of growth is stepping into those new relationships. See, it's the the power of proximity. This is something I learned from Tony Robbins when he was a younger man and he was start, still building his career out, still becoming well-known. He was there, he was successful, but nowhere near is where he's at today. He had been invited by a friend of his to go and get on a private jet to travel across the world with five other men, one of which was the richest billionaire in Canada. So all of these men were billionaires and nine-figure earners, you know, 100 millionaires. And Tony is just beginning to break into like that millionaire place, but not really. And I'm talking just revenue, not profit, revenue. He's beginning to finally do that. And so when he gets this invitation, Kent, he's he's freaking out. He's worried, like maybe some of us are, that, but I've already got this going on in my life and I got this going on in my life. For Tony, it was, I've got work and employees and events and speaking things all coming up and my schedule's so jam-packed and I'm still a bit of a one-man army that is doing all this. I don't have the systems and structures for other people. It might be, I've got my kids and I've got you know my family and I've got my old friends and I've got you know, work and I've got my W-2 and I've have all these responsibilities that I can't walk away from. As my mentor would say, I'm too busy being broke and unhappy right now to go learn how to be happy. Right? Like he, like, cause that's what sometimes we do. We make up excuses about, Hey, I'm too busy living the life that I don't like to go learn how to live the life I do want to live. And it seems silly when I say it that way, but that's what we do. That's the decision we make. So in this story, Tony actually his friend just kind of calls him out on it. He says, listen, did I just hear you say that you're not sure if you want to come with us, that you you need to think about getting on a plane with five billionaires traveling around the world for the next three weeks? Like, you have to think about that? And Tony was like, no, 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 I, I said I'll be there. And he gets on the plane, he travels with them, but still being shy and uncomfortable, he kind of puts himself like he's in the room, but he's kind of playing small in the corner. And what was interesting was maybe around day six or day seven, when they're leaving one country and going to the next, the, the billionaire whose jet it is, the, the richest man in Canada, comes over and Tony's reading a newspaper and the guy slams the newspaper out of his hand and says, you know what, I got a problem with you. And Tony's like, oh crap, like I got pissed off the billionaire. And so he's like, I'm sorry, what did I do? And he says, you know, I heard so much about this great Tony Robbins, but here it is. I'm sitting with this like little mouse of a man. Like, what? Do you not like us? Do you not want to be here? What's going on? And Tony's like, 
And then the guy like kind of cracks a smile and like, you know, shows like, hey, I'm joking, but like seriously, like, what's up with this? You know, it feels like you don't feel like you belong here in this room with us. You know, what what's going on? And Tony says, You guys are so much higher than me. It does, I am a little intimidated. You know, and the guy says, Well, here's what's interesting. We were out in a country and the people, they came running over to you and they're saying, Tony, Tony, you saved my life. Like they barely even speak English, but Tony, Tony, you you changed my life because of the sort of work and the impact he was having on the world as his work was beginning to spread with the positivity, power of mindset, transformation, things of that nature. And so the billionaire says, you know, it's kind of crazy to me that they come to you and they're saying this. He's like, meanwhile, I run these companies. I employ hundreds and thousands of people. They're able to send their kids to school, have a home because of the work I do. And yet no one's ever come up to me and said, like, they love me, that they're grateful for what I do. He's like, you're you're a great person, but like, apparently you don't see it, at least not while you're here with us. Why is that? And so the billionaire begins to ask him, like, what do you want to do? Like, what, what do you want to do with your life? What do, what's the mission about? Tony says, my mission is I want to become the president of the United States, but I want to run under my own ballot. I don't want to need funding because I feel that there's more good that needs to be done. And I don't want to be bought like every other politician. I want to be able to go inside there under my own means and be able to make the change that I think is possible. And this is where it comes full circle, Kent. The, the billionaire says, well, if that's what you're going to do, you're going to need to earn a lot more money than you're earning right now. Because running for president, that costs hundreds of millions of dollars. Like You need to earn way more money than you're earning. And he asked him, hey, how many investment bankers do you know? Tony thought that was like a really weird question. He's like, I don't know, like a few, maybe like two or three. It's like, okay, well, how often are you hanging out with them? He's like, I don't know, once a year, maybe? The guy says, well, that needs to change. You need to go and spend more time with more investment bankers. You need to be spending, you need to know more of them and spend more time with them. He said, because check this out. He says, I bet you right now that if you wanted to go and act in a movie tomorrow, you can go and get a role in any movie you want to act in. Would you say that's true? And Tony says, yeah. And Tony, keep in mind, Tony Robbins is not an actor, right? But why was he able to do that? The billionaire pointed out, you're, a lot of your clients are these actors and directors and movie stars that you work with. So you're in proximity with a lot of these people. They're your friends. They will do you a favor. If you said you want to film a movie tomorrow, um, there's a lot of people that will actively make that happen for you because those are the people that you're in proximity with. He says, if you're going to earn more money, you need to go and get in proximity with these investment bankers. You need to go and hang out with them. He says, I'm telling you right now, that the power of proximity is the thing that's allowed me to earn my billions of dollars. And Tony Robbins in that moment learned that the power of proximity is the thing. It's one of the cheat codes. He said out of everything he's learned over these last four decades of personal development, of high performance, working with the world's one percenters in every industry, top five, number three that he learned, the power of proximity changing your circle of influence, changing who you spend time with. If you want to become a successful real estate investor, you're going to have to stop spending time with the people that you grew up with, the people that are just going to happy hour every Friday, the people that just want to sit around and watch another game of basketball and who want you in their fantasy league. You may have love for them. They're your friends. But right now, if your goals are dictating that you be in another influential circle, you don't have time for them. And I like to tell my friends that all the time. I actually, can't, I had a conversation with a lot of my childhood friends. And when I stepped into this journey, I told them, guys, I have love for you. At this moment in my life, though, I don't have time for you. And I'm not saying that in a rude way. I'm saying that I'm communicating with you that I'm going to be absent for the next couple of years. And if it's ever an emergency, you pick up the phone, you call me. However, if it's not an emergency, I'm going to see you when I'm done with the process because I've got to go into this cocoon. And because of that, I'm still great friends with all of them. Man, that's so that's such a great story and how you shared that, Marlon, because I, I think for people that are embarking on this journey, 
what I have found is in the beginning, it was incredibly lonely. It's incredibly lonely because you are now separating yourself from your old group of friends. And it's going to feel so uncomfortable because these of your friends, your friends that you've been hanging out every single weekend, talking about the old days, the good old days. And how I've been able to overcome it is I think we are now the folks that are leaving a friendship circle, but not abandoning them. Like you said, I think you you worded it beautifully. It's like, we're the ones going out there and getting the scrapes and bruises to pave a different path for our friends so that, hey, when that path is paved, come along whenever you want. Mm. And you and I think sometimes people underestimate how much work it is. It's a lot of work going to these meetups, especially if you're introverted or whatnot, going to these meetups, making new friends, feeling small in these new circles that you are now going into, just so that you can build more proximity with folks that are doing it on a level. And just so that you can pave a path for your family and friends whenever that they're ready. And I think this is so valuable because I hope people watch this podcast today and say, hey, let me get closer to Marlon because he has 20 doors. He has done affordable housing. And I know he's further ahead than I am. And I hope people take away from this conversation that you don't need to help millions of people right away. You can just help one person a day and that's it. There's a reason why I underwrite a property every single day live. Because I think if we're able to help people figure out the first step, then naturally the second step reviews themselves. So what I literally do right now, Marlon, is when I underwrite Section 8 properties every single day, I literally tell people, hey, for tomorrow, underwrite the same deal I'm underwriting today. Use the same spreadsheet. Say the same things I'm saying, but put it on your own YouTube channel and claim it as yours. Because that will give you enough confidence to say, hey, at least I underwrote this property and I got the cheat sheet from yesterday's underwriting that Kent did. And now all of a sudden people will see that I'm being consistent over time. And if I do this over 100 days, then all of a sudden I feel a lot more comfortable analyzing deals. But I share that story because sometimes people just they forget what the next step is or they can't figure out what the next step is. So anytime we can just take the next step or just guide them in one little step, then naturally they, they will reveal themselves. And I think what Marlon said today is like, man, if you just get around the right people, that can be your next step. Just go to the next meetup. Call DM Marlon. That's all you made me. That's the next step. DM Marlon for his coaching program. Um, but Marlon, I just want to say thank you so much for that sharing that story, man. It was so inspirational. And I'm so glad you were able to share that because I think I have learned so much from you today. Truly. And I've been so inspired, man. So inspired. Yeah. Kent, thank you, man. This has been absolutely fun. And I, I love what you're doing for people because this is a part of how they start to change their world. This is in the beginning when we don't quite know. Like, but everyone listening right now, if you're like, but where do I find that next group of people? How do I connect with them? Well, look at where you are. You're in a room, you're listening on YouTube, you're listening on Spotify, you're listening wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Go in the comment section, right? Go and see who else is engaging. Leave a comment so someone else can find you, right? Like that's like start engaging in the comments, start leveraging social media to connect with each other, right? Follow Kent, right? See who's also following him and start connecting with those people. We got to be a little resourceful here, but those are some of those tips that will start to bring you into proximity with the next right people. Man, that's so powerful. So for any of you guys that are listening right now, we've started a Facebook community. It's called Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing. Facebook community full of affordable housing investors. And what I've been doing is underwriting deal every single day in there. And also, whatever resources that I've come across, like contractors, I put them all in there. The whole, some of the hardest parts about being successful in real estate, and even the most successful real estate investors will let you know, it's finding the right team and finding people that you can rely on and that are responsible and just do what they say they're going to do. So sometimes that is the hardest work. And right now, what I've been doing is just leaving out all those resources in a Facebook group, sharing it all with all of you, because I understand how scary it was. I was so scared when I first started. I was like, what if a contractor you know, was being shady to me and steals all my money and my investors' money? It's a real fear. Mm-hmm. But at least I can tell you, hey, I've used these people. They haven't stolen from me. It doesn't mean that they won't steal in the future and you don't do your own due diligence. But at least I know I've I've used them before. And I hopefully that removes some of the fear. And every single time that Marlon and I can get on a podcast and remove just a little bit of fear from your life, I think that's impactful. And I think that's worth 
a while for you to listen. So make sure you guys follow Mindset Marlin. Oh, Marlon, I got one more question for you. This is a question I ask everybody. Why do you think affordable housing, particularly the lack of supply, is so hard to solve for? Curious to hear your thoughts there. Interesting. I, you know, that's a, that's a really good question. I would say the first gut that like reaction that comes to me, and this is an opinion, right? This is truly an opinion. I would think it's because I'm going to say really it's a, I hate to say this, but it's like, it's greed mindset. It's a, it's this thought process of like, I want to take care of me, 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 me. And unfortunately people don't realize on the mainstream at least. And I could speak from having been someone that grew up in the mainstream. I grew up with the average way of thinking. There's this belief that if I want to make money, it's a dog eat dog world. It's like, I got to step on the other guy versus as I've grown my business, as I've grown as an entrepreneur, I've learned that the more I concern myself with taking care of the other person, with pouring into the next person, the more opportunities, the more abundance actually flows back to me. It makes it a lot easier to receive. Receiving becomes a lot easier when my focus becomes how do I take care of you and take care of the next person? So I believe it's a mindset shift that needs to happen. And so these kind of conversations, these sort of podcasts, um, going and connecting with people, this is what it looks like to start shifting the conversation. So I think what's happening is just the right conversations haven't been had long enough and often enough and with enough people yet. So these sort of, this is changing that right now. So I, I believe it's changing for the better. Um, as these conversations spread. Oh man, I, I love that. I love how you continue to press on mindset because I would argue that's 80, 90% of the issues out there. It's whether or not it's self-limiting beliefs, whether or not it's a stigma against affordable housing, whether or not it's just someone says like, let me take care of myself before others. And I think people have so much to learn from you, Marlon. Hey, for people that want to learn more about you, get in contact with you or learn more about your coaching program, where else can they find out more about you, man? Yeah, I would say Instagram. Instagram is going to be the best place to hang out and connect. Like, guys, I love social media. It's changed my life personally. Uh, so my goal is to go on social media and to share things that are positive, share things that ultimately, if you bump into me randomly in the ocean of social media, that it can add to your life, not take and distract from it. So finding me on Instagram at MindsetMarlin. Um, pretty much on all my social media platforms, YouTube, Facebook, it's at Mindset Marlin. It's all one word, Mindset uh, Marlin, M-A-R-L-O-N. And yeah, that's the best way to, to get in contact with me. If you have any questions, you know, feel free to reach out and DM me. I'm very accessible there. Um, although I will give you all the heads up that it might take me two or three days to respond just because the sheer amount of uh, volume and conversation that happens inside of my DMs. Hey, and I have learned so much from Marlon, guys. I mean, he's the reason why I decided to spend uh, with every person that comes into the affordable housing community. I decided I'm going to try to set on a 30-minute Zoom to do a one-on-one -on -one with everybody. I learned that from Marlon because he said he's trying to reach out to every single one of his followers. So I was like, that's a great idea. And that's just another example of why you would follow someone like Marlon. Because he has given you steps tactical steps on how to improve and take the next step and towards improving your life. So Marlon, I'm so thankful for you, man. In the spirit of Thanksgiving, I'm so grateful that you have come onto the podcast to share your time again. I know the audience is going to take away so much from this conversation, man. So thank you for what you do because without people like you that invest in affordable housing, I would have never had the home I grew up in. So thank you so much, man. I'm so grateful. Without people like you, I seriously would not be the person I am today. So thank you so much for coming on here, man. I appreciate it so much. And Kent, thank you for having me. This is awesome. Thank you for being so dang consistent. And I'm looking forward to having you back on my podcast, man. You are an amazing, <laughs> you're an amazing guy. And yeah, for everyone that's following Kent, guys, like if you're new here, make sure you hit that subscribe button. Make sure you <laughs> lock in. When you find good people, I believe in latching on and you know really getting tugged along by their boat. And Kent is a good boat to latch on to. Oh, dude, I love you, man. Oh, that was so good. All right. And we are out.